0: The notion that we can just suspend economic production and expect everybody to come out on the other side and just resume things, it's insanely naive.
1: Welcome to Consensus Distributed from Coindesk, where you'll find live recorded talks and discussions from Coindesk events and more. Today's talk was recorded live at Coindesk Distributed on May 11th, 2020. This episode is sponsored by ArisX, the Stellar Development Foundation, and Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund.
2: In this session, author of The Bitcoin Standard, Saifadeen Amous, speaks about crypto, Twitter, and more with Coindesk's Nolan Bowerly and Bailey
3: Reitzel. This show is all about backup plans, but not just any backup plans. I'm not talking like us taking Consensus Virtual on this Brella platform or on Twitter like you're seeing. No, that's child's play compared to the alternatives we'll be discussing today. So welcome. Welcome to Plan B. I'm Bailey Reitzel.
2: And I'm Nolan Bowerly. Yeah, we're not talking about little changes. These are really big changes, and we're coming at it from folks who really see it as binary. These are people who believe in the systems that are going to change some of the most oldest, venerable, powerful institutions in the world.
3: Yeah, we're talking central banks, governments, the mainstream media. These legacy institutions all have their critics. And we've brought several, on, several of them on the show today um, to discuss why Bitcoin, why blockchain, why cryptocurrency in general is going to change the world. So let's start with central banking. Central banks have really flexed their muscles recently, as a result of this coronavirus pandemic. Um, what we've just seen is some of the largest money printing exercises in history, and that's across all of the major fiat's. We're joined today by by Professor Dian Amos, author of the runaway bestseller The Bitcoin Standard. Welcome, Safedean. Having hey, me, Betty. Great to have you. Um, I want to start, you've written an entire book about how central banks have gotten almost everything wrong in the past 50 years. Um, But right now, I'm actually assuming that people are quite pleased with central banks if they even really understand what central banks are, Um, maybe more broadly, they're, they're feeling okay about governments as they've received this free stimulus money. What's your reaction to that recent muscle flex?
0: Well, you know the hit of the addict always feels good when you first take it it's the withdrawal that's the problem so you know heroin would be a very good idea if it didn't involve withdrawals and i think the same can be applied to analyzing central banking actions um more generally um The problem I think uh, is quite structural. And when we have a monetary system, that's uh, an advanced monetary system like Bitcoin, that is digital, that is apolitical, um, we can see the shortcomings of a debt-based system, which constantly, um, you know, periodically requires endless amounts of money printing and quantitative easing, and all of these uh, processes take place. Sure, it, it, it might appear like the central banks are being heroes for saving the day and for stepping in and for ensuring that things um, don't go too badly. But I think the real question that people need to be asking themselves is why does this monetary system require central banks to keep stepping in all the time? Uh, that's not normal. That's not uh, healthy. And, um, you know, Bitcoin uh, seems to be growing and offering us a completely different alternative way of running this monetary system. You know, at the time when um, central banks are just finding more ways of, uh, or having to inject liquidity into their systems in order to prevent catastrophe and hope that this sticks this time and that they won't need to do something like this next time. Bitcoin's method of approaching uh, this is to just stick to its original schedule that it was specified before 2009 And, um, you know, we've seen over the last 12 years, many people have tried to uh, uh, change that schedule, but it continues to stay as it is. And I think this predictability and the use of a hard asset rather than a debt asset is what distinguishes Bitcoin from the central bankers' um, currencies. And um, it's going to be fascinating watching over the next few years and few decades um, how this how these two models unfold. On the one hand, we have a political model where money is made out of debt and it continuously requires political decisions and political bailouts versus a a purely automated monetary system where uh, pretty much everybody has given up on the idea of having any kind of discretion over the monetary policy and the monetary policy just functions um, on its own um, with a hard asset that cannot be inflated easily.
2: So say I want to get your reaction to something former uh, Treasury Secretary um, Lawrence Summers just said. Uh, he mentioned that the high point of central bank independence has passed. What does that mean to you? I don't think he's saying the high point of central banking has passed, which I think would be something, I don't want to read your mind, but that would be something you might say. Um, what does it mean to you? And is it scary? Does it give you pause to hear the word central bank independence has passed?
0: Um, it's, it's not very scary, but I think it's, uh, it, it's, probably, uh, there is an accu- there is some sense of, uh, accuracy in this. Um, there was a, there was a time in the 1980s after the inflation of the 1970s, when the notion of central bank independence was being, um, heavily pushed around the world. And it succeeded to an extent, to a very large extent in at least limiting the, uh, inflationary policies of the 1980s of the 1970s. So we did get a reduction in inflation, and there was a sense of central banks being um, more independent from politics. That, uh, particularly in developing countries, uh, you know, uh, the IMF and the World Bank had managed to impose some kind of fiscal and monetary responsibility. That was at least the uh, the, the the impression. However, uh, this was extremely untenable because central banks are, by their nature, unavoidably political because their entire existence is predicated and dependent upon the fact that they enjoy a monopoly privilege uh, afforded to them by the uh, government. And so it's I think it's it's, it's a completely um, um, it, it's completely fallacious to imagine that government can provide central banks with a monopoly that allows them to issue currency and allow them with the monopoly and give them the monopoly that allows them to be the only entity that regulates banks and the only entity that can uh, send money and receive money from abroad, and at the same time expect them to just have an apolitical um, uh, remit and expect them to just uh, treat monetary policy as if it was a purely technical um, or scientific quest that, you know, th- these these are just some philosopher kings sitting in an office figuring out the right interest rate. I think this is... This I, I, is-
2: and I'm always curious why it's 0.25%. You know what I mean? Why all, why can't it be 0. 03 if they're so... Accurate. Yeah. it's
0: always point two five. It, it it sounds like it's some kind of scientific, uh, you know, process that <laughs> needs to be adjusted very meticulously, but it isn't. It's political, and it's uh, you know, the central bank's policy cannot escape the political constraints of what uh, governments want them to do because governments appoint central bankers. They cannot escape the economic constraint of what
2: their constituent banks want them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, a little bit of a con- can, can I just translate that to your book for a second, because I would like to yeah. tie them together in your book. One of the things that I felt I was reading was that a lot of these central bankers, because of this closed system, it wasn't a race to the the, the smartest or the most insightful. It was really a survival game and almost like corporate bureaucracy had sort of taken over the um, achievements or the insights or the abilities of some of these folks. Do you have a reaction to that? Is that, is that a, an accurate reading of what I heard? I think so. I think, I mean, it's,
0: uh, we, we, the, the pretense of pretending that this is all, um, independent that this is all scientific is really falling apart. Uh, as we see these crises pile up and we see these kinds of emergency procedures and we see. Uh, you know, we, we really making up, uh, making it up as they go along is the only ideology or the only scientific basis for so, what it. So is- if
2: it really is all psychological, what are the signals we're going to get from Bitcoin, um, let's say having a stronger psychology, right? What makes Bitcoin stand out and and how can it transcend and push through these limitations that you're describing?
0: I think ultimately it's just the, the, the brutal realities of supply and demand. They're, we're always finding new ways of, central banks are always finding new ways of increasing the supply of their money. And they're tasked by ensuring that there's no inflation. So they're constantly in trying their best to, sorry, there's no deflation. So they're constantly trying to, their best to increase the money supply. And we see that happening all the time. However, with Bitcoin, we see the opposite. We see the supply declining. So I think just the brutal uh, realities of, Uh, the supply is not declining, but the new production is declining. So you know we're already made about 80, 90% of all the Bitcoins that have ever been produced are already produced. And the new production is just going to get smaller and smaller. And so Bitcoin's um, credibility as a store of value and as a a medium of exchange, as a form of money is continuing to increase because it operates without all of these uh, political oversight, because it operates without all of these um, uh, problems that central bankers have, which, you know, I think it's, it's, it's astonishing to think about it, that Bitcoin really um, does to central banking what the um, automated telephone does to uh, phone operators. It used to be that in order to make a phone call, you needed to have somebody plug a wire that connects to your house into a wire that connects us to somebody else's house. Uh, and now we've figured out a way to obviously make it much more uh, productive by just turning it into automation. And I think this is ultimately what Bitcoin does. And as you know, as I think the, the the interesting thing over the last few months is that as the world has fallen into crisis, um, you know, all kind of risk assets liquidated and Bitcoin liquidated for a while and it lost a uh, significant amount of value, but it wasn't outstanding volatility by Bitcoin standards, or maybe it was, but uh, Bitcoin's now recovered and it's still up on the year and it's still up on um um, you know, since the year's end, since the turn
2: of the year and it's up. Uh, and, and following up on that question that I had about signs, would you take one of those signs as the broad based retail buying around that dip as one of those things that you're looking at that there was this sort of, uh, a lot of people believe this was temporary and just a few people shedding some risks?
0: could be. I think it's, it's, it's still a little too early to start reading uh, signals from Bitcoin's uh, price to the broader market because just because Bitcoin is, is, is so small at this point that, uh, you know, one uh, hedge fund deciding to allocate money into Bitcoin, I think, can have a significant impact on the price. Um, but I think more important than any kind of specific trigger or any kind of specific uh, sign is just the continuous reliability, the fact that every 10 minutes there's a block, more or less, exactly as expected, and that the supply increases exactly by how much is expected, and that there's no politics. You know, we're we're witnessing a once every four years uh, change to the monetary policy. And, you know, nobody is arguing about it. Nobody is discussing whether we should change things or this way or that way. And I think um, there might not be one kind of specific um, incident that uh, brings the attention of the world. but I think slowly but surely the, the drip continues to um, uh, turn into a, a stronger current because um, because of Bitcoin's just a constant uh, nature, uh, relentlessly operating.
1: Support for this podcast and this message come from ErisX. X. With ArisX, you can trade spot and regulated futures on cryptocurrencies through a licensed U.S.-based exchange. ArisX believes in fair access for all. Sign up today to take advantage of zero fees and learn more at ArisX.com/consensus. This episode is also sponsored by the Stellar Foundation. The Stellar network connects your business to the global financial infrastructure. Whether you're looking to power a payment application or issue digital assets like stablecoins or digital dollars, Stellar is easy to learn and fast to implement. Start your journey today at Stellar. .org/coindesk. Our final sponsor is Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. In times like these, diversification is key. Consider Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund, ticker symbol GDLC. It's the only publicly traded investment product that offers diversified exposure to large cap digital currencies, all from your brokerage account. For more information, visit grayscale.co/coindesk. That's g r a y s c a l e . c o coindesk thats slash coindesk
3: I wanted to ask you just quickly on the response to your vi- the virus, sorry, because um, we had just talked about that. Um, your response has outraged a few, including your famous advisor um, who wrote the foreword to your Bitcoin Standard book. What's I guess what's your major concern with the response to the virus right now? Coronavirus, obviously.
0: <laughs> I think the major issue is that um, people are massively underestimating just the absolutely devastating impact of suspending economic production on the amount of capital that people have and on the livelihood of people. So on the one hand, we have a lot of people, particularly poor people all over the world, who are going to uh, who are already at a very fragile state um, economically because of you know their poverty. And this you know the idea of just telling them to stay at home for a few days or weeks is not something that can be um, that they can handle. It's something that pushes them really over the edge. And over the first few weeks and. Uh, excuse me, over the first few weeks and months, it's possible for them to uh, continue to survive because governments are still able to hand out um, food and because people have some savings. But the question is what happens next month, next year, a couple of years later, as people's uh, economic production falls apart, as businesses close down, as, and I think this is one thing that people haven't really spoken about, is just the amount of capital structure that is being lost. Capital is not something that we can accumulate uh, easily and it is something that we can destroy very easily. So factories, businesses all over the world are shutting down. And these took many, many years of trial and error in order to build them. And shutting them down is not going to be replaced um, overnight. And so I think the, 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 the economic consequences of the shutdown are going to massively outweigh the, um, and, and the humanitarian consequences of the shutdown are going to massively outweigh the, the, the health consequences and the humanitarian consequences of the disease because um, the notion that we can just suspend economic production and expect um, everybody to come out on the other side and just resume things, it's insanely naive. It, it assumes that living organisms like uh, the, the economy is something that can be suspended, but you can't suspend living organisms because once you suspend them, right. you suspend the living processes and then they can't resume it. So I, I'm, I'm extremely worried about about um, the economic situation later. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that we have Bitcoin as, as, a, as an escape uh, boat from, uh, from all of this insanity. Spe-
2: speaking of, of safe boats and escape boats and Bitcoin, you're about to go teach a class. What's it gonna be on?
0: It's going to be specifically about uh, Austrian economics and Bitcoin, what Austrian economics tells us about Bitcoin. It's the last uh, lecture in my course on uh, Austrian economics. Um, so I've done two courses on principles of economics. Today is the last lecture. Um, pretty great timing to be on the day of the having. So basically, it applies everything that we learned in the 19 previous lectures in the two courses toward uh, Bitcoin and um, what we th- what, what Bitcoin tells us.
3: Cool. Thank you so much, Sefideon. Um, We are wrapping up this section and we'll be back very shortly. Before we pull back, um, I just want to call everybody's attention to the rest of the content we've produced for this conference. Um, we've got several tracks that you all can find through Brella in case you're watching this on Twitter or on the Coindesk homepage right now. So go register at Brella, um, take a break from crypto Twitter and watch some of those other segments. Thanks so much, Saifadiyan.
1: You've been listening to Crypto Talks from Coindesk. For new, short daily episodes, you can subscribe with Apple Podcasts, Spotify,
2: or your favorite podcast player. This session featured Saifedean Moose, Nolan Bowerly, and Bailey Reitzel. It was recorded live during Consensus Distributed 2020.